Uh, dear Lord, uh, thank you for your goodness and your loving kindness. Uh, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. It's not a mystery who you are. It's not a mystery how we relate to you. It's not a mystery who we are. And um, I pray you bless this time. I pray that uh, you'd reveal yourself. I pray that you would give us grace, increase our comfort with and our, our confidence in your word, God. I ask these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is a uh, this is a four-week series, uh, how to read the Bible. We call it Bible Boot Camp internally. But... Uh, the premise is how um, the premise is to make people more comfortable with reading the Bible, and to give people uh, some tools on how to teach the Bible. And so the there's this great quote, uh, Gerald Bray. He's a professor. He's often at Beeson. Uh, he's uh, Coffee Colvin actually just finished Gerald Bray's 1,200-page book this week. Uh, <laughs> But, um, but Gerald Bray says, when you're teaching the Bible, or if you're reading the Bible, uh, you, need to, uh, you need to communicate three things. You need to communicate what the text means in the greater story of the Bible. You need to, to communicate what the, what the text means in the historic, the immediate historic context in which it was written. And you need to communicate what the text means for today. And so, um, and so that's going to be the structure of the next four weeks. The first two weeks... We're going to do what we call Bible Boot Camp. We're going to look at an overview of the Old Testament and an overview of the New Testament. The third week is going to focus more on what does the text mean in the immediate context. And it's really going to be about uh, how to use commentary. Uh, when you read the Bible, there are so many things. You'll, you have absolutely no idea what they mean unless you have a commentary to inform you about that day and time. So, uh, for example, you know Jesus, the story John 4, Jesus and the woman at the well. Uh, you would have no idea that it was a major deal for Jesus to walk through Samaria. That's something that Jews did not do in that day. You would have no idea that it was a major deal to... Um, you, you can sit out there. It's all good. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to be able to see the, the thing. Okay, um, that it was a major deal for Jesus to talk to a Samaritan or uh, that it was a no-no to drink after... So he was, he was violating all these kind of uh, extra-biblical laws. And so... So anyhow, you need a commentary to know those kinds of things. So week three, which is going to be in July, uh, that will be that will focus on how to use commentary so that you can, when you read the Bible, and also how to read it on your own. Forgetting commentary, just how, some tools for how to read it when you're just going through a text on your own. And then the last week is going to be how to teach the Bible. And some of you may be like, well, not really going to teach Sunday school, not signing up for VBS anytime soon. Uh, but it's just a good it's a good uh, skill to have if. One day they call you and they, and they say, we need people who are desperate for someone to teach Sunday school. You have some tools. Or if you're a parent or a grandparent or you're going to be a parent, uh, hey, you know, to be able to communicate God's word to your kids, great tools to have. So that's the overview of what we're going to do. Okay, now the, this week's going to be the Old Testament. And I'll tell you kind of how, how this series came to be. And by the way, you're going to get a 20-page packet. When my uh, when my college intern gets here in a few minutes, <laughs> um, but uh, but anyhow, uh, a couple a couple of things um, kind of brought about the genesis of Bible Boot Camp, which we did for the first time last summer with, just with the kids. Um, one was uh, I went to a movie. Um, it's a Most Wanted Man, which is the the last movie that Philip Seymour Hoffman did before he died, and the movie is about um, is about a uh, basically a, a terrorist situation and uh, international counterintelligence, that kind of stuff. And I decided, the movie started at 8, and I decided at 8.10 that I wanted to go to the movie. 
And I'd asked the people at the movie, you know, how long is it before a movie actually starts? They said 22 minutes. 22 minutes of previews is kind of the average. So I booked it. I booked it to get up there. My wife and kids were out of town. I'm like going to a movie by myself. Nothing greater. Uh, the fantasies of people with small children. And um, and so I walked in just as the movie was starting. And there was this. There were two sentences that kind of gave a little bit of context for the movie. And if I had missed those two sentences, the movie would have meant nothing to me. I wouldn't have gotten the movie because the movie's about, uh, it's set in Hamburg, Germany. And I didn't know this, but that is like a kind of been a hotbed for terrorist planning and organization and activity. A lot of the 9-11 attacks were planned out of Hamburg. And, uh, and it's kind of a crossroads of Europe and didn't know that. If I hadn't known that, Really wouldn't have understood the movie at all, and I was thinking, golly, I'm really glad that I, I'm really glad that I came in just in time. And so, uh, about a week later, I was meeting with a 20-something young man who was very mature as a Christian, and so um, we had said a month before, um, I'd said, you know, let, let's read, a, you know, we meet about once a month. I said, let's let's read a book of the Bible, and next time we meet, we'll talk about it. So let's read Jeremiah. I haven't really studied Jeremiah really intensively before. Let's do Jeremiah. So we got back together a month later, and I was like, well, you know, here's some things I got. What'd you get? He's like, I didn't get a, a thing. So I quit after the seventh chapter. And, um, and then we started to talk about it, and I was, it made perfect sense. If you don't know about the exile, if you don't know about the divided kingdom, Jeremiah is not going to mean anything to you. And so uh, not too long after that, Jay Gardner and I were driving up to, um, we were driving up to Camp McDowell, and we were talking about this issue about how a lot of people are intimidated by the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, because they, they, don't know the, they don't know much of the history. They don't know the context. And we were thinking, you know, it's, not, it's really not as intimidating as you think. And we were talking about how, what, what are like nine like irreducible events that if you know those nine or ten or eleven events, um, then you can, read, you can with confidence read the Old Testament. And so we kind of went through and we're saying, well, and we went through every book of the Old Testament, just, you know, uh, kind of talking through, well, you can't understand Nahum if you don't know this. You can't understand Jeremiah if you don't know this. You can't understand the Kings if you don't know that, so on and so forth. And so what we kind of did, you know, talking in the van, going there to and from, is we were writing down basically this narrative for the whole Old Testament, this narrative for the whole New Testament, and talking about how every book fit within that narrative. So that's what we're going to do tonight, is we're going to look at these nine categories, these nine time periods or nine events of the Old Testament. We're going to go through, I'm basically going to tell the story of the Old Testament in about 15 minutes, and then we're going to go through and tell the whole Old Testament again, and we're going to show how every book fits into the story. And um, we're going to, we're going to you know, get, get in the track start, and we're going to sprint. Um, we're going to sprint, because that's you know, covering... Covered a couple thousand years there. Um, but first off, the question is, why read the Bible? Like, why is this such a big part of our life? And, uh, you know, just real quickly, first, uh, Jesus believed it was the very word of God. I have an exam on this tomorrow. <laughs> and there are about 40 different scriptures about Jesus' view of the Bible. And let me tell you, I, say, I always say our Bible should never be any less or any more than what Jesus thought about the Bible Jesus believed that every single word of the Old Testament was the word of God. Every word. That's Matthew 5. Matthew, you look at Jesus in, uh, in Matthew 4. When Satan comes, to, Satan comes to tempt him, 
Jesus says, uh, the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus goes on to cite text after text, the word of God. Um, Jesus, um, Jesus in Matthew 15, he's having a debate with the Pharisees and they're saying, why don't you, um, why don't you make your disciples follow these rules, which were outside the Bible? They were, they were kind of Jewish tradition. They weren't biblical. And Jesus says to them, uh, he says, he answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother what you, should, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Okay, so, you know, the Ten Commandments written by Moses, right? He says God commanded. He says this, this originates from God. And over and over again, Jesus, he teaches from Scripture. He cites Scripture over 60 times in the New Testament. And, uh, and he says not in, in Matthew 5, not a single word of the Old Testament. Actually, he says not a dot of the T or cross of the T. Dot of the I or cross of the T. In basically Hebrew terminology or, or Greek terminology. But so anyhow, so Jesus believed that the full Old Testament was divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible. All right. So I say for our view of, of Scripture, we should just align it with Jesus's view of Scripture. Um, OK, so that's the first thing. Second, how do we know anything about God? How do, how do we know anything about Jesus? How do we, you know, things like the Trinity, things like forgiveness of sins, things like heaven, the second coming of Christ? We don't know any of that except from the Bible. Every single thing we know about God, we know from Scripture. And so, um, so that's kind of a big deal. Uh, third, it's a means of grace. You know, like grace is kind of what we live off of. Grace is what we need. There are three means of grace, prayer, sacraments, and the Word of God. And so, uh, so you know, we need as much grace as we can get. This is one of the three avenues through which God delivers grace. And then finally, it'll change your life. It's a promise that the scripture will change your life. Uh, the high priestly prayer, John 17, Jesus says to the Father, sanctify them in your truth and your word is truth. So the word of God sanctifies us. It changes the people more like Jesus. In Acts, you see the, this personification of, of the word of God it is living and active. And uh, in, in Hebrews, sorry, Acts uh, chapter 6, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So as the word of God increased, more and more people started to follow Jesus. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 4, uh, as many people heard the word of God were saved. So the word of God will change our lives. Okay, a couple of basic things about the Bible. First off, the Bible is narrative. The Bible, it's, it's a story. Um, and so that's, that's a, you know, to kind of, a lot of times people think about the Bible as a rule book or a game plan. And there's, there, you know, those are part, you know, there's certainly there are plenty of rules and there's moral law and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's a story. It's a story of redemption. But it's not just a story. It's not fiction because it's historical. We believe the things that occurred in the Bible, they actually happened. So it's an historical story. That's what people talk about redemptive history. Um, it's also personal because we're in the story. We're not mentioned by name, 
But all of these, you know, when we talk about God's people, talk about, you know, those who are in union with Christ, uh, those who are a part of the body of Christ, those who are in the church, um, that's talking about us. That's talking about our lives. And then it's practical because, I mean, gosh, think about all the, all the different decisions we make, um, things that we consider. Uh, it informs our life. Should I do this? Should I do that? The Word of God says don't do this. Don't do it. <laughs> it is practical. So those are just some, some very basic things as we get started. Um, so now, the fun part. The whole Bible, the whole Old Testament in 50 minutes. And so here's what we're going to do. You've got your, you've got your sheet. And we're going to go through the categories. And so, you know, as we enter into this, let me just kind of set the stage. Uh, let's see, who's got a big Bible? Here's a big Bible right here. All right, so I, and this is, this is, I'm not saying this in a, a combative kind of way, but I think one objection that a lot of people, uh, secular people have about the Bible is the scientific inadequacies of the Bible. They say, you know, the, the, with evolution and scripture, the two are not compatible, so on and so forth. Okay, I want to show you. The Bible spends, let's see, this many pages right here. That's two, two pages on creation. The scientific part of the Bible, two pages. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 1,187 of those chapters are dedicated to the problem of sin. They're dedicated to redemption. They're dedicated to reconciliation between God and man. And they're dedicated to reconciliation between God and all the cosmos, the whole world. And so the Bible is focused on one thing, and that is overcoming and redeeming what happened in the Garden of Eden and restoring the world, restoring mankind to himself. That is the focus of the Bible. Chapter 3, the problem occurs. That's when sin occurs. And then Revelation 22 and 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book, are about the total restoration of the world. And everything in between there is taking us from original sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, to the, the completion of that restoration and redemption of mankind and of the cosmos. So what we need to be focused on what the Bible is about and what it's not about. It doesn't have every answer to every question. It's not going to tell you what kind of oil to put in your car. It's not going to necessarily tell you about the Big Bang Theory or its, its merits or lack of merit. It is focused on the reconciliation and redemption. Okay, So that we need to be stay focused on that. And here's the thing. There is a, there is a, a verse that really sets the stage for the whole Bible. That's Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Some people call it the Proto-Evangelion, which is the first gospel. Uh, I'm so glad it was my first seminary class. By the way, I've been taking seminary classes since the Nixon administration. And um, my, my youngest son, Hutch, will probably have a PhD by the time I finish this master's degree. It has, it has been slow going and tough sledding. Um, but my first class, uh, back in the Nixon administration again, was uh, the, the guy talked about the whole hermeneutic, the whole verse for interpreting the entire Bible is Genesis 3.15. And um, it says, this will surprise you, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, this is right after Adam and Eve have sinned. Uh, death has entered into the world. 
Every problem that ever existed comes from there. And so God is kind of making a new world order. And he's making a promise. And so when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent. And enmity, uh, enmity means murderous hatred. It's used five different times in the Old Testament. And it, 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 the translations of it are like murder, hatred, uh, murderous revenge. So murderous hatred is a good word for enmity. So he's saying there will be this tension between the serpent and the woman and between your offspring and, and her offspring. So he's kind of setting up these, this uh, dichotomy, this, um, this dialectic of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. God's kingdom led by Christ, uh, Satan's kingdom filled with darkness. Okay, And so you see there's enmity, there's conflict and tension between the two. And you see that flow throughout the whole Bible. Why is it, if you've ever read First and Second Samuel, if you've ever read any stories about you know, Israel, why is it that people always want to kill the Jews? Why do they always want to kill Israel? They're always picking on little Israel, right? And you know, why is it that Jesus is a baby, a poor, disenfranchised baby, and you know, his whole life people are trying to kill him? Right? It's because of the enmity. It's because you see this theme go throughout the whole Bible. And, and, and so then the second part of that is he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The he, most commentators say, is Jesus. This is the first introduction of Jesus. It's a third person, masculine pronoun, singular, that comes out of nowhere. No, it comes out of nowhere. He, who's the he? It's not Adam. It's not the serpent. It's not Eve. The he, the he is Jesus. And, you know, he says that you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel Okay, you know, what's the difference between bruising someone's heel and crushing someone's head? You know, and so, so we, you know, we look at that, and so what you start to see is you see this cycle of fall and redemption, fall and redemption. Uh, Satan does his work, or man sins, or the two kind of go together, and then God redeems. Uh, Satan gets a lick in, and God crushes his head. So you see this cycle of fall and redemption go all throughout the Bible. So that's kind of, that's, that, that's a good little hermeneutic there to start with okay so now we'll start with sorry go back to creation my bad uh great okay we're going to start out nine categories that we're going to go through and uh we, yeah we're on old testament main events all right first is creation this is genesis one and two this is god creates the world everything is perfect uh, man Adam and Eve are in harmonious relationship, no conflict. Man is in perfect relationship with God. Man is in perfect relationship with himself. There are no problems in the created order, in the created world. Perfect relationship with the environment. Everything is fine. It's Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> um, Genesis chapter 3 takes us to our next category, which is the fall. Adam and Eve sin. Death is instituted. Uh, all bad things originate there. And so when we do our kind of classification here, we run fall all the way to Genesis 11. Because after Adam and Eve sin, there is this picture, it's a, it's a dark, it's dark. It's very, very dark. What is the first story after, um, after Genesis 3? Murder. Cain and Abel murder, right? You've got the righteous, the righteous brother and the unrighteous brother, and the unrighteous brother murders the righteous brother. You see the enmity there. And so, and yeah, and you have the flood, uh, you have the Tower of Babel. So you can see from Genesis 3 just how 
uh, dire and drastic the effects of sin are. All right, so we run that all the way to Genesis 11 in the J. Gardner Cameron Cole <laughs> classification of the Bible uh, that is a, a Word document. Um, all right, so then next we go to the patriarchs. Um, and this starts in Genesis chapter 12. And, you know, the patriarchs, uh, th- that begins with, with Abraham. And so this is, this is a huge deal. Abraham is, is huge in the Bible. He's one of the most cited and alluded to people in all the Bible because this idea of like God having a people that are his own uh, is it begins there. And God makes promises. He makes promises to give Abraham land, to give him uh, offspring, to give him a people and a lineage, uh, to give him salvation, to give him a relationship, to be his God uh, and to give him grace. And so so God, you know, this is the beginning of the nation of Israel. And, and, you know, the rest of the Old Testament is really going to kind of follow God's people, the people of Israel, all the way through Malachi. And this is also the precursor of the church in the New Testament. Uh, the Israelites are, um, yeah, kind of set the stage for the, for the church. All these promises made to Abraham coming in a, a bigger, better fashion through Jesus and being extended to all the peoples of the world, the Gentiles, uh, including in the Jews, too. Um, so, the, so the patriarchs start with Abraham. It goes through Jacob, sorry, it goes through Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. So the rest of the book of Genesis uh, kind of covers this patriarchs period. Uh, you know, you can see why Genesis is a really good book to know. Because like three, three, you know, so much major stuff occurs in the book of Genesis. All right. Next, next period is the Exodus. And, uh, you know, in Exodus, we're not just simply talking about, um, we're not just talking about, uh, you know, getting out of slavery and crossing the Red Sea. We, we're classifying Exodus as the, the, all, all the way up to the promised land. So basically, enslavement in Israel, Moses leading them across the Red Sea, the period of 40 years in the wilderness, and then stopping before they go into the promised land. That's what we're kind of calling it. And so, so anyhow, God's people, at the end of Genesis, going into Exodus, there's really very little detail about how it happens. There's like a paragraph, two sentences, about how it is that the Jews become enslaved. But basically, they fall out of favor with the wrong Pharaoh, and they end up in slavery. And they're in slavery for over 400 years. 430 years is, is, um, is you know, an estimate. But, um, but, you know, at the end of that period, but there's these promises of a new land are still on the table. The promised land is still on the table. But, you know, that's like over four centuries they're in slavery. And so, you know, God calls Moses to be the one who liberates them. He brings the plagues over and over again to try to get Pharaoh's attention. Uh, and finally, the Passover story, that's the one that really does get his attention. And, and so finally, Pharaoh says, let my people, you know, I'm going to let you go. You guys can hit the road. And they get to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changes his mind. God performs a miracle, the sea parts, and they cross over the Red Sea uh, into the wilderness. And then, you know, they, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, but a lot of, a lot of things happen in the wilderness. They weren't just kind of twiddling their thumbs. You know, God feeds them with the bread of heaven. Uh, God delivers the Ten Commandments, the worship law, all the law, all the Pentateuch is delivered while they're in the wilderness. They have some conflicts. And then, uh, you know, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, none of the people who came out of, out of Egypt were allowed to go into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. 
And so the end of this Exodus period is, is the book of Deuteronomy, and that's where God is preparing them to pass on the faith to their children. So that, so that the, you know, the faith in Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, Father of Jesus, will continue in the promised land. And so that, that, is, that is the Exodus period. All right, next step is uh, entry into the promised land. We call this the conquest. The conquest, um, okay, who's, who, who leads them into the promised land? Joshua, what river do they cross? Great, Jordan. All right, who is Jesus named after? Joshua, yeah. So going into the promised land kind of foreshadows Jesus bringing us, you know, bring us into heaven, bring us, uh, us into, um, uh, into glory. And so, um, so the next period involves the settling of the promised land. And so it, you know, begins with Joshua and, and the conquest and it's military. I mean, God says you need to clear the entire land. Uh, it's not a genocide as a lot of uh, critical scholars want to say, because God doesn't say kill everyone. But God does say, clear this land, it's yours, it's mine, uh, whatever the cost. And they don't obey. They don't, they don't fully go to the full extent. And so when they, they settle in the promised land, and the government during that time was a theodicy. God was the king. They did not have a human king. Uh, and this is what you call the judges period. And so in this, uh, you know, in this period, um, it's, it's like if you read the book of Judges, it's the same old story over and over and over again. They, uh, the Israelites are enticed by uh, idols and foreign gods. They start to worship them. They're conquered by an outside source. They're brought into exile or they're, they're treated poorly. And then God raises up a judge to rescue them. And it happens over and over and over again. Very reminiscent of Genesis 3.15. Very reminiscent of my life every single day, right? Um, but, but anyhow, so that's the judges period. And, uh, and then at the end of the judges period, the people want a king. They want to be like other nations. They want a king. And uh, they, they beg God for a king. God says, sure, finally, sure, you can have a king. And this, and this is the beginning of our next period. Next period is the monarchy or the kingdom. And um, anybody who's first king of uh, first king of Israel, Saul. Who's the last judge of Israel? The book's named after him, Samuel. Samuel. And so, um, so this is the beginning of the kingdom. And the first king of Israel is uh, is Saul. The second king of Israel is David. Third king is Solomon. And uh, these are high times. Things are good in Israel. They are, their land is expanded. Um, God's favor is upon them. They're protected from their enemies. They have incredible wealth. Incredible wealth. Queen of Sheba brings like $250 million worth of gold uh, to Solomon one day just as like a Christmas present. That's a good Christmas present. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so this is the kingdom. And in that period... Um, you uh, not only is the there's the, the the covenant with David is made, the the temple is built. You know, for forever they had worshipped God, you know, in a tent effectively, and now Solomon builds this beautiful temple to the Lord. Not as beautiful as his own house, which is a problem. Um, but anyhow, this is what we're talking about with the monarchy or the kingdom. And again, this is kind of foreshadows in the New Testament Jesus uh, being, you know, being the the king. The king of the king of the universe, and so that's the monarchy. 
All right. Stop for a second. Fire hose turn off. How are we doing so far? We tracking? Going too fast? Anybody have any questions? Okay, we'll continue with the story. Um, so far, we've, we've gotten through um, First Chronicles, and it's only taken 10 minutes. Okay, so then, um, Connor, you probably could have picked a better, better picture there. <laughs> but anyhow, so then next, now this is the period of the Bible, guys. This is the period of the Bible when, uh, when people, people generally don't know about the history in this period. This is where most people are like, yeah, I got, I got all that stuff up to Solomon. But when we talk about the divided kingdom, uh, we talk about the exile and that kind of stuff. We talk about books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, um, a lot of the prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, that kind of stuff. This is where most people, the, the knowledge, uh, they kind of hit an impasse. And so, um, so hopefully this will get us home. So the divided kingdom, you start to see uh, the kings, David, but particularly Solomon, they start to become a little morally lapsed. Uh, there, um, uh, you see, you know, David has the conflict with Absalom. Uh, you see with Solomon, Solomon uh, just really starts to fall in love with money and women and, uh, and, and, and power as military. And his son, Rehoboam, uh, is, you know, is his successor. And Rehoboam makes a big mistake. He's a young king. He goes and he talks to the older, the elders. And then he goes and he talks to his buddies, his peers, and he listens to his buddies instead of listening to the, the older, wiser men. The older, wiser men say, hey, Solomon was too harsh. You need to lighten up on the people. His buddies say, no, 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 tighten up even more. His, the elders say, hey, if, you're, if you lighten up, the people will love you. They'll stick with you. But if you tighten up, they're going to rebel. And he does what his buddies say. And, uh, and they re- there's a rebellion. A guy named Jeroboam uh, rebels against them, leads a rebellion, and this is the, the division of the kingdom. There's a civil war, and you have now a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is often referred to as Israel or Ephraim. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. And you know, the thing that's amazing is if you look at a map, the northern kingdom has like all the land, tons and tons of land. Southern kingdom is like Rhode Island. <laughs> and, but the temple in Jerusalem are in, uh, are in the southern kingdom. And so, and, and, and honestly, there's more, a lot more biblical attention paid to the southern kingdom because they tend to be the more faithful kingdom. The northern kingdom is a complete train wreck, total train wreck. When you go through Second Chronicles, you go through the kings, and you get some of the history of the kings of the northern kingdom. Or actually, it's really first and second kings. You don't get any in the second chronicles, but but they're all bad. There's like one guy who's decent. <laughs> Everyone, every one of them, it says that um, you know that they did wicked wickedness in the eyes of the Lord. That's the that's the refrain over and over. They were wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and they you know they worship they worship false gods. They don't pay any attention to to you know. The God, of J- the God of Abraham and Jacob, Yahweh, and uh, the northern kingdom is a train wreck. The southern kingdom, they, ha- they, they, have some good, they have some good kings, they have some really good kings, they have some bad kings, but the southern kingdom is much, much more faithful, much more faithful to the Lord, much more prosperous, and, um, but they, you know, the battery starts to run out of acid, um, 
around the uh, end of the 6th century BC, around around 600 BC or so. And those kings get more and more lapsed, um, more and more um, disobedient and unfaithful. All right, so that's the, that's the divided kingdom. All right, now next is the exile. And you know that both, both groups were exiled, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, this is a huge deal. This is... Uh, the exile is, is um, it's critical. You can't really understand hardly any of the prophets. Um, and you definitely can't understand like Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, Esther, unless you know about the exile. But what happens is God warns them over and over again, look, you need to be faithful or bad things are going to happen. And he continually continues to tell them, trust me, don't make foreign alliances. Like, don't trust the Egyptians. They enslaved you for 430 years. Don't make an agreement with them. You know, trust me on this. Make the agreement with me. And they, they disobey the Lord. And so 721 uh, BC, the Assyrians sack and conquer the northern kingdom. And they just take the people off, and they don't really do anything with the land. And I mean, no, actually, maybe they resettle some people on the land. Sorry, didn't relapse there. But regardless... The northern kingdom really never kind of gets back together. It's just kind of uh, scattered, chaotic, uh, loosely organized from there on out. The southern kingdom makes it to 597. Uh, there is warning after warning after warning from the prophets about the Babylonians. Look, the Babylonians are going to conquer you. Don't make these foreign alliances. You need to trust, uh, trust me. You need to be faithful. And then finally in 597, all these warnings come true. And uh, the, the Babylonians conquer Israel. And it's, it's really kind of a series of conquests, but basically they take the people out of Israel and they move them to Babylon and they are effectively slaves. And so some of these stories like Daniel, you know, and Daniel and, and how that all those stories, those are set in, in Babylon during the exile. All right. So, so then, uh, you know, you have some prophets during the exile, but the, you know, the exile, most of the attention is like almost all the attention is given to is the exile of Judah, southern kingdom. So uh, there's a um, last part, last chapter here. Uh, a king of Persia, Darius, I believe, uh, has a, he, sorry, the Babylonians, this is this actually what happens in scripture. The Babylonians were a total superpower. Like there's no one was going to touch them, but they all get completely drunk one night. And the Persians just happened to be the night when the Persians were going to attack them. And the uh, Persians attack them during Mardi Gras, basically. And, uh, and they're called, you know, Caught with, they're caught, they're caught not prepared. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, church, church. Um, yeah, they're, they're caught not prepared. And, uh, and they get taken over. And uh, the Persian king's just like, hey, Israelites, go on home. Uh, and, hey, why don't you t- take some of your money back? And he's like, out of nowhere, just spontaneously generous to them. And, he, and it says that the Lord, the Lord just did a work on his heart, changed his heart. And so the, uh, the, they go back to the land, and uh, they, you know, they start to rebuild the temple. That's the book of Ezra. They start to rebuild the wall. Um, that's the book of Nehemiah, and um, and they, you know, try to start over again, and it just doesn't go very well. <laughs> and that's the end of the Old Testament. It ends in Malachi with, uh, you know, they had they had become lapsed. Uh, they were not worshiping the Lord um, as they were told to. Uh, they were intermarrying. They were just, you know, they were just really unfaithful. And that's the end of the Old Testament. 
And that kind of sets the stage for, for Jesus, uh, you know, about four centuries later. All right, so that's the story. That's the story of the Old Testament. In 20, that's uh, mm, eight, 19 minutes. 19 minutes, whole Old Testament. Okay? So what we're going to do now is we're going to go through that again, but we're going to talk about how the different books uh, fit in. Uh, any questions at this point? Okay. And um, I might add some editorial comment about books I think are just awesome. Untapped, there's a ton of untapped treasure in the Old Testament. There are some great books that we never touch that are just amazing, amazing books. Um, okay, so creation. Genesis 1 and 2, no need to go any further. Next, fall, Genesis 3, we kind of cover, we, we covered that out to Genesis 11. We talked about that a fair amount. And then patriarchs, Abraham the patriarchs. Uh, that's the rest of Genesis. All right, so we kind of kind of established that in the first round. All right, now Exodus. And remember, we talked about Exodus being the time they were in slavery for 430 years, uh, being led across uh, the Red Sea, and the time in the wilderness. And so the, the book of Exodus uh, starts in slavery. It covers the plagues. Um, it covers you know going across the Red Sea. And some of the law is delivered. It also covers Moses kind of losing, losing his temper and the, the edict that none of the Israelites will be allowed to go into the promised land except for Caleb and for Joshua. Uh, so that's the, that's the book of Exodus. Amazing book. Leviticus, everyone's favorite, right? <laughs> totally. Um, but Leviticus is basically the worship law. Um, you know, how we do sacrifices, how we worship the Lord, and the establishment of the priesthood, and those kinds of things. And so, um, yeah, so that's that's the book of Exodus, again, delivered during this period. Um, and there, you know, there you can see this the sacrificial system established here. That's Leviticus 16, the, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, so anyhow, I've, I've studied it once. Uh, uh, Alan Ross has a commentary, because the church has a commentary, it's about 700 pages long, on Leviticus. So it's amazing. It's actually, actually, it's really pretty cool to study. You see all of the intention and all the design God has in all these laws. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, if you have a good commentary, it, there really is some, you see some of the beauty of God's design in it. Uh, numbers, totally underrated book. Um, numbers, uh, there's, there are a lot of numbers in this book. There's like a census of the different tribes and things like that. But it, it covers you know, some of the wandering around in the desert. And you see, you see the gospel a lot in Numbers, as far as the people mess up, they, they complain, and the Lord restores them. You see God providing for them in the desert. A lot of, some of the law is delivered during Numbers. But um, Numbers is a really underrated, uh, underrated book. And then Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy, the last book of the Exodus period, is preparing the, um, preparing the people to go into the Promised Land uh, Deuteronomy is the book of family ministry. It's the book of family discipleship because it's all about how do we pass down the faith to our children. Uh, so as far as like our ministry and thinking about you know how we form kids who are faithful to Christ in the church and, uh, and how the church and families do that together, so much of that content comes from Deuteronomy. Fantastic book. Great one if you're a young parent in particular. Um, all right, so that's the Exodus period. Next. The conquest. Conquest, Joshua, uh, you know, follows the 
crossing over the Jordan into the Promised Land and uh, you know, the Battle of Jericho and, and some of these some of these uh, you know battles. Um, good book, good book for junior high boys. Lots of uh, lots of activity and and uh, battle. Um, but um, but yeah, so jo- jo- that's Joshua and then Judges. Judges is just it's the, it's as wild as a Friday night. It really is. Um, it's um, it covers the period where there's no king in Israel. The the kind of big verse of Josh, of Judges is there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what he saw fit in his own eyes. Very relevant to today because it's um, it's basically looking at what happens in a morally relative culture, where you know what's good true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, and What's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you. And it is a, it is a R-rated book of the Bible. Um, one story I'm not even going to talk about that's so bad. But one, less, less bad, is where uh, a woman is chopped into multiple pieces and mailed all around Israel. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's rough. But, um, but honestly, it's very convicting because you know, it's like over and over again, they, they fall in love with their idols and then the Lord restores them. And so the judges, who are the ones who rescue them, um, are uh, they foreshadow their typological for Jesus and how we, you know, Jesus rescues us over and over again. Um, and then Ruth. Ruth actually takes place um, takes place during this period. Uh, what a great book of the Bible! Unbelievable. Not just uh, not just a um, not just a nice story, you know, to teach girls about virtue, but uh, but the Abrahamic uh, the Abrahamic covenant was in jeopardy because uh, the Abrahamic uh, line ran through um, ran through. Jeez, Louise Cameron, Ruth's family, Ruth's family, right? And uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. And her sons had died, so the so the family is not going to um, Naomi's family. Naomi. Naomi's family, sorry, Naomi's family. And, and so basically Abraham's line was going to end. And so, you know, Ruth going with Naomi um, back to Israel, which is completely inexplicable. Like she's not going to get a husband there. They're starving there. Everything's going to be fine for Moab. But she decides to, you know, stick with Naomi. Um, and then the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, comes, marries her. And the line is continued. The line is continued. So it's more than just a story about a nice girl. Um, so, anyhow, so that's the conquest. All right, next, the monarchy. The monarchy is First uh, and Second Samuel, and we cut it at at First Chronicles. First and Second Samuel actually were were one book originally written. They're meant to be a foil between a righteous king and an unrighteous king. Uh, the, the first one being about Saul. Uh, Saul's a Saul's a bad dude, and then Second uh, Samuel mainly focuses on David. Now David's obviously a, a, very much a part of First uh, Samuel, but uh, he's more the focus of Second Samuel. And um, Chronicles is really focused and dedicated to David as well. Lots, tons of content on David in the Old Testament. Um, all right, so the divided kingdom. Uh, and you're probably, you'd probably be better off to go to your, um, go to your notebook here for this one. Um, but so the kingdom divides. And let's see here. Yeah, kingdom divides, and so First Kings, you have you know you have, you have Solomon, and uh, you have you know something like Elijah, Elisha, some of those prophets, and then you have you know pretty early on in First Kings you have the story of 
of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the division of the kingdom. And so then the rest of First and Second Kings is kind of this back and forth between microbiographies of the different kings of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And, um, and so, and you, you know, it's the same story over and over again with the northern kingdom. They're all bad. Um, it's just varying degrees of bad. And then, uh, you know, you have some, some biographies of these uh, southern, southern kings as well from Judah. Uh, these are this, and then Second Chronicles really only focuses on the southern kings, the kings of Judah. Uh, I think that... Um, uh, I think that Second Chronicles in particular is a tremendous book for men because um, it's it's like all of these case studies in leadership. Uh, not to say not to say that it's not accessible for women, um, but you just see men like thriving or totally screwing up in the kinds of ways that men tend to do over and over again. And so um, I, I find that I teach a, a Bible study for I started it last year for dads who have boys and. Um, a lot of a lot of the content came out of Chronicles. There are some amazing characters in Second Chronicles, um, very underrated, like Asa, for example. All right, so that's those are kind of the books of history that surround the divided kingdom. Now we get to the prophets. This is where it's going to get a little bit complicated because you can divide the prophets into two different ways. You divide the prophets in terms of where they fall in relation to the exile, pre-exile during the exile, post-exile. And you can also divide the prophets in terms of their audience, whether their audience is the northern kingdom or whether their audience is the southern kingdom. Uh, so, for example, uh, Jonah. So, the prophets to the northern kingdom pre-exile. Jonah, Hosea, and Amos. And, um, you know, when you read First and Second Kings and you see just how bad the northern kingdom was, um, you get a picture of why it is that Hosea and Amos are so harsh. I mean, Amos is, is so in your face, so harsh, so wrathful, and it's because the, the people were just so out of control bad. And uh, Hosea is the same way. It's, you know, it's a story. It's a, it's a story of a prostitute who's unfaithful and you know, a man who loves her and how she's repeatedly unfaithful. And, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's historical and it makes connections to the northern kingdom. But anyhow, these are, these are prophets of the northern kingdom. Same with Jonah. Uh, Jonah, um, you don't really get a ton of content about the northern kingdom, but Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. All right. So then prophets before the exile to the southern kingdom are Isaiah. Isaiah is my absolute favorite book of the Old Testament. Uh, it is so beautiful, and there is so much prophetic content about the coming of Jesus. Really, in lots of the lots of the the prophets. I mean, they're really setting the stage for this Messiah who's going to come and who's going to um, you know completely save the day. He's going to die for the sins of the world, and um, and have a global empire. And uh, and so Isaiah is divided into two parts: the basically warning them about the Assyrian conquest. And the second half is kind of warning them about the Babylonian conquest. The second half of Isaiah is spectacular. The content on the servant, um, it is just ab- it's beautiful. It's all about Jesus, and it's very, very clear, especially when you get to like Psalm, Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant, where it basically is talking about uh, the, the crucifixion. 
um, in, in Christ's substitutionary death. So anyhow, so there's Isaiah, then there's Jerry. Oh, sorry, I'm going to sorry get a little more chronological. Um, Joel, Michael, again, they're warning them about the Babylonians. Um, there's also some some uh, Christological prophecy. Joel is where the Pentecost is prophesied. Um, Zephaniah, same deal. Habakkuk is kind of Habakkuk is Habakkuk and Jeremiah are kind of closing the door on uh, before the exile. Um, Habakkuk is basically saying it, it's it's on, like the the Babylonians are coming. It's over, and it's 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 a really personal book. It's a great book for those who are in doubt, because um, Habakkuk is wrestling with how can you let how can you let our people be so wicked, and how can you let the Babylonians, who are much worse, how can you let them conquer us? It's a it's a great book, um, and then uh, Nahum, Nahum is a really random book of the Bible. Um, it's so funny because it's all about the conquering of the Assyrians who had continuously badgered the northern kingdom, I'm sorry, the southern kingdom, and they'd been just a threat and a thorn in their side forever. And it's basically God saying their day is coming. Like it, it, they're, they're going to get theirs. And, uh, and it's a very dark book. It's very wrathful. But Nahum is comforter because he preaches justice because the Israelites are so confused about why the Assyrians continue to thrive and to mess with them. Um, anyhow, all right, that's a, I know we're fire hosing here. Questions? Anybody lost? Jeremiah is the is really the end is the, really kind of the transitional book into the exile itself uh, because in Jeremiah um, you know you kind of have the final warnings and Jeremiah says it's over and Jeremiah ends with the Babylonians pouring into to Israel. Um, there is uh, Jeremiah thirty one thirty four is is just absolutely beautiful because he talks about the promise of them being restored, um, but it's a it's a tough book. It's a really tough book. All right, now the exile. Uh, now we have books of history related to the exile. Uh, those would be Esther and Lamentations. Kind of call Lamentations history or prophecy, probably prophecy. Um, and you know, anybody? It's, I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with Esther. The, bo- the word God is not used in the entire book. Um, it is a wonderful book. Tim Keller did a four-part teaching series on Esther, the silent sovereignty of God, and it is it is showstopper material. It's it's great. It is great. You can see how God kind of quietly um, rescues God's people from genocide, effectively. Uh, there was going to be genocide of all the Jews, and through uh, this woman in the king's harem, God orchestrates their salvation. It's amazing. Great, great book. Um, there's a book. There's a movie about it, right? So for a time such as this? Yeah, there's a movie. Haven't watched it. Um, anyhow. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, prophecies that occur during the exile. We have Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel is... Uh, Ezekiel, you know, gets on God's war chariot. <laughs> and a vision travels back to Israel to see how, how it's been left in shambles. There's nothing left. And, um, and so, yeah, Ezekiel is... Uh, it's, it's, it's a it's a challenging book. Um, Daniel, phenomenal book, awesome book. You know, you have the stories in the first half of uh, God's faithful men, uh, and it's, it's you know the Daniel in the lion's den and the writing on the wall and all this kind of stuff. Great book for kids in particular. It's very concrete, very clear. Also very helpful because they're uh, religious minorities as Jews living in a pluralistic society in Babylon, uh, so it's very relevant to today. 
And, um, and then the second half is a lot of prophecy. A lot of that prophecy is about Jesus. There's a lot of what you call eschatological prophecy, which is prophecy about the end of the world. A lot of the images that are in Daniel are, uh, are picked, up in, uh, picked up in Revelation. And also in Daniel, you have, there's this prophecy about the Son of Man. And, uh, you know, as this divine figure who will um, be cut off for the sins of the world. And Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so if you know Daniel, you know that terminology, you start to see how provocative it was that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, that's not the only, that's not, the Son of Man is used in other contexts too, it's like a prophet and things like that. But Jesus was talking about the, like the, capital T, Son of Man. Um, and then finally, Obadiah. Obadiah, some people classify it, uh, the dating on it's a little more challenging. Some people say it's pre-exile, some people say it's during the exile. Um, it's similar to Nahum. It's basically saying, hey, your enemies, they're going down. It's going to be bad. <laughs> Anyhow, so, so that's, that's books during the exile. All right, now finally, coming down the stretch, baby. You can see the finish line, mile 24. Um, but anyhow, uh, the restoration, these books are awesome. I mean, these are some awesome books. Uh, Ezra is, a, is about how they're released from exile. It's about the, uh, reinst- the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstitution of temple worship. Uh, Ezra is a fantastic figure in the Bible. Um, Nehemiah, one of my all-time favorite books. Nehemiah is the ultimate book on servant leadership. This is about uh, the rebuilding of the wall. Um, yeah, the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. And you see these guys are, and they're, they're rebuilding the wall in the desert with no infrastructure. And they're meanwhile being attacked by foreign governments that don't really want them to get their act back together. And so they're fight, they're like rebuilding the wall with one hand and holding a spear in the other hand. I mean, it's, it's really awesome. Um, and you see Nehemiah as this figure who's constantly looking to the Lord constantly seeking the Lord's wisdom, constantly depending on the Lord. Short book, you can read it, piece of cake, study it in a week, and, uh, and you'll be blessed. It's awesome. All right. I sound like I'm, I sound like I'm, you know, I'm like an Amazon salesman. <laughs> I would recommend to you Nehemiah for a Friday night. And uh, anyhow, um, anyhow. Uh, and then finally, the prophecies declare, that are after the exile. Um, you have three. Oh, no, no, sorry. You have three. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, Haggai is two chapters. It's like one page. It has got, uh, it's got so much content. And uh, basically, it's about how the people, they're back in the land. They're supposed to be rebuilding the temple. But they stop building the temple in order to take care of their own houses. And it's a great, um, it's a very applicable book in terms of how a lot of times we turn our attention away from the Lord and kind of start to worry about our own matters rather than seeking first the Lord and his kingdom and his righteousness and then letting the other matters of our life fall into place. But anyhow, Haggai, good book. Zechariah, I just don't know a ton about Zechariah. Um, it's, there's, there is some Messianic prophecy in Zechariah. And then Malachi, uh, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. I think Malachi is, uh, has so much. There's so much in Malachi. Uh, from there's a lot we can learn about tithing. There's a lot we can learn about worship. Um, a lot we can learn about. I don't say a lot we can learn about marriage, but 
can definitely learn about dating and who we choose to marry. And, uh, and there's you know, the prophecy of John the Baptist, um, John the Baptist and of Christ coming, the, the messenger. Who can endure the day of the Lord? Who can stand when he appears? He will come like a refiner's fire. And that is it. And then, you know, you notice I didn't include, next, can you go to this next slide? I'm sorry. I didn't include the books of poetry. I didn't include Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Um, the reason I didn't is because, well, Psalms, uh, all, what we're talking about here, the Psalms would be, this is very applicable to the Psalms because some of the Psalms are written by David and some are written, um, some are written during the exile. Uh, I cannot remember the Psalm, by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and there we wept and we remembered Zion. Um, how can we sing King Alpha song in a strange land? I can't remember the Psalms. It's, it's up in the, like the 130s. But, um, but anyhow, that's a, you know, if you, it's helpful to know about the exile to understand that Psalm. But, um, but uh, I, I say th- these aren't really contextual dependent. They're not dependent upon historical ca- context as much. I mean, the Proverbs are the Proverbs of the Proverbs. Uh, they don't necessarily, they're, they're written at the time of Solomon. Um, but, uh, but you don't have to really know tons about historical context to understand uh, the Proverbs. Same with Ecclesiastes. Actually, it is helpful to know about Solomon to know about Ecclesiastes because uh, Solomon is, you know, the wealthiest man in the world with, you know, a thousand girlfriends. And, um, and he's the most powerful man in the world and he's completely dissatisfied. And it's, you know, it's his lament about how the meaninglessness and the vanity of life outside of relationship with God. So, um, so anyhow, Ecclesiastes, there is some historical import. Song of Songs, also written at that time period, is a play. Song of Songs is a play uh, between, you know, a man and a woman who are in love. And it's meant to, you know, be an allegory for God's love for Israel and Christ's love for the church. Brilliant book. Um, so anyhow, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> woo! round of applause. Yay. All right. We cross the finish line. The entire Old Testament in 40 minutes. Okay, I'm out of breath. Um, does anyone have any questions? Any more book recommendations, right? <laughs> Going once. Going twice. Let's go back to the beginning and why God at the time of Moses did he begin his revelation Why at that point in time? Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean it's You're really guessing. a rebuttal to what's going on into the world and mm-hmm. the pagan worship of many gods, and it's a declaration that there's one God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that this one God does want to have a relationship, I guess, is whereas the other gods were not really about relationship, and they were about not good things for the most part. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Anyone else? All right. Well, I'll pray for us and we'll hit the road. Next week will be New Testament. All right, Lord, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us. And thank you for tonight. And thank you that we're able to do it within the time frame. And uh, pray for next week. Uh, pray that you would help us and prepare us and Pray, Lord God, that you glorify yourself in us. We bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we would know and love and adore you more and more, and um, that we would enjoy uh, the freedom and the rest 
uh, of, of being in relationship with you. I ask your prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.